Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. First up this week, Spencer Finch. He's presenting two new installations at two venues on opposite sides of the United States. His The Western Mystery, a commission from the Seattle Art Museum for its Olympic Sculpture Park, is up through March 3rd, 2019. Yes, 2019. At Mass Mocha, Finch's Cosmic Latte is on view at least through 2018. Finch's work typically addresses light and its relationship to memory at specific geographic locations and often specific times. He's fulfilled commissions for and had exhibitions all over the world, including at the Morgan Library, the Rhode Island School of Design, the Art Institute of Chicago, the MCA San Diego, the Pulitzer, the Corcoran, and more. Many art museums hold his work, including the Hirshhorn, the Kemper, the Guggenheim, and others. On the second segment, MFA Boston curator Frederick Ilchman joins me to discuss the MFA's showing of Botticelli and the Search for the Divine. But first, Spencer Finch, after the break. From Washington, D.C., and America's first modern art museum, come Manet, Degas, and Cezanne, Van Gogh, Gauguin, Bernard and Matisse, along with Picasso, Brock, Miro, and Kandinsky. A modern vision, European masterworks from the Phillips Collection at the Kimball Art Museum through August 13th. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. Presenting the 2017 Off the 405 Outdoor Summer Concert Series at the Getty Center. Enjoy the counterculture chic and melodic British 60s pop sounds of White Fence, on Saturday, June 10th at 6 p.m. The Getty presents an evening of live music amid stunning architecture and breathtaking sunset views. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Spencer Finch, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello, nice to be here. I thought we might start not with light or color, because that's going to come up plenty as we talk about your work, but with how you decide to represent an experience or, or light or a color in your work. Your piece up at the Olympic Sculpture Park in Seattle, The Western Mystery, uses panes of glass to synthesize the colors of the sunset over Puget Sound as seen from the Sculpture Park. How, how is it in thinking through a work and what a work is going to be, what the object is going to be, how is it you decide what three-dimensional form that will take? Class, garage doors, whatever. With that, what I I was really interested in doing with the piece in Seattle was to have a piece that is kind of a really sort of crude representation of a sunset because it is these panes of of glass 20 to 30 inches square, roughly. And so it's it's a kind of, you know, not a very subtle instrument for, for painting color. But what it does do is because the glass is hanging from single strands of wire, it's moving. And so each of these panels is interacting with the other panels and constantly, constantly mixing. So it exists in time the way a the way a, a sunset does. And so that aspect of the color mix is really what I was after in recreating a, a picture of the sunset rather than this sort of 
subtle, high-resolution painting that one would normally associate with a with a picture of the sunset. So the the glass, it's translucent and transparent nature, and by hanging it in this space in three dimensions rather than mounting it on a wall, for example, it exists in three-dimensional space in the way that a real sunset exists in a, in a three-dimensional space. And it's also constantly shifting. And for me, what's interesting in watching a sunset is that it is changing and finally and finally disappears. And so that was really the aspect of the sunset that I was trying to get at, and the glass really seemed to be an appropriate material for doing that. It also sounds like the movement of the glass is is really important. Is there a story behind how and when and why you came to embrace movement? Well, I mean, I think the first the first glass piece I did was a piece that was based on uh, Monet's pond in, in Giverny, and the idea of that reflection constantly changing, the, the reflection in the water of the uh, of the surrounding flora, and the kind of analogous materiality between glass and water was what got me to work with it in the first place. And then I've just sort of continued to explore it, and it becomes a material that I, I find can, well, I guess it works two ways. It, it works as, as something that's representational or, or at least referential, and it is also something that is sort of incredibly complex and interesting and beautiful in its own right. And that sort of back and forth between those two things where it is in a way a picture of something but also an installation in it, in its own right that that sort of complex relationship is very interesting to me in an effort to get at how different your decisions about how to realize light and color can be i thought that the the most opposite piece <laughs> if you will that I could come up to from uh, from from uh, the Seattle piece was a piece uh, you made titled Sunset St. Louis, July 31st, 2008. This is a piece made up of soft serve ice cream. What made soft serve ice cream the right medium for the light? I guess yeah. Let's start there. That that was a, a a funny. I mean, it's a funny project because it started with this plan. The Pulitzer in St. Louis wanted to have a. I think if there were five contemporary artists doing work with light in correlation with a Flavin exhibition that they were having, and since I'd worked with fluorescent light a lot, they I think really wanted fluorescent work which I really wasn't interested in showing in close proximity to Flavin, simply because it would be interpreted as, you know, too dependent on, on that precedent, which, and, and my sort of interest came, came from something else. So, so I decided to try to think about light, a light work in a, in a broader way. And I started thinking about the light of the sun, which is something I've, I've done work with and so I thought oh well if I did a solar if I did a solar powered piece 
what what would sort of make logical sense. And so I thought, oh, well, if you use the power of the sun to make a picture of the sunset using solar energy, that would have a, a certain symmetry and logic to it. And then I kind of took it another step and thought, well, if I have this power, how do I turn that power from the sun into a picture? And and that's when I thought, oh, well, it should be uh, it should power an ice cream machine, and that ice cream machine will make ice cream that's the color of the sunset. So I went out to St. Louis and did watercolors matching the color of the sunset, and and then mixed five different colors with the with the soft serve, and it took a lot of tests to get it right, and then created a formula for each of the colors. So during the course, the run of the the exhibition, which was several months, the people could just mix the mix the product with the with the food coloring in the right proportions to get the exact match of each color. So that was really trying to do trying to get as far away from I guess Slavin's approach to light and color as I could and to do something that really made sense with the idea, not not just the actual the, the sort of physical reality, but the idea of, of solar power. I, I guess that as different as those things are in physical form, soft serve ice cream to glass, <laughs> it's kind of hard to say with a straight face, that what links them for you is a conceptual underpinning. And I know from having read other interviews you've done that you consider your work as being particularly grounded in conceptual methods and processes. And I think we've we've heard a little bit of that are those two very different poles or two different ways of doing the same thing interesting to you in and of themselves for their difference? Or is your primary, if not only, interest in, in, in the underlying concept? No, I, 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 like, I, I like that difference. And I, I like, you know, a, a approaching each, each work differently and thinking, well, what material makes sense with with this particular idea in this particular con- context. And so that, I mean, it's also fun to, you know, to work with, with, new, with new material. I've always enjoyed it. And it's something that, I mean, I, I think that, that that sort of idea of the material having a meaning is something I remember really vividly learning in school. I, I started in ceramics. And when I started doing that, the idea was that I mean, I thought everything you wanted to say, you could say in ceramics. You just sort of make some sort of shape and you convey your idea in ceramics. And I remember a classmate of mine who was in the sculpture department said, well, you know, clay actually has meaning. And if you want to, <laughs> if you want to convey certain meaning, the material has a lot of, you know, significance. You might want to try something else that, you know, can sort of suit your purposes. And it was a, a kind of epiphany that has stuck with me all, all these years. And, and it's something... I think that I've sort of pushed further into a sort of general interest in different materials and not also sticking with a particular material or or style. I mean, I think there's a certain probably consistent grammar running through the work, but certainly not a a sort of a style or a, a material. I think that anyone who works with colored glass, whether it's in um, uh, hanging from a wire or actually being used as or in place of a window, 
I think it's kind of inevitable that the decorative arts historical context comes up. Are you interested in your work's relationship or with decorative arts, or do you think that isn't even there? Yeah, I mean, I mean, my interest in, in in colored glass originally came from the sort of certain medieval ideas of stained glass, and the sort of really from I think it's 13th century France, where there was a famous abbot whose name I can't remember had this idea of stained glass turning profane light to sacred light, and it had to do with the the light shining, you know, the profane light shining through the religious image. And entering the cathedral and becoming and becoming sacred, and that sort of I mean I guess that's some sort of transubstantiation or something I find incredibly interesting in this idea of the way a transparent medium can change the 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 sort of quality i mean in that in that sense the sort of moral quality of the light is fascinating to me and and then extending that and 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 making it contemporary and and thinking about how glass can change the nature of the the light itself and and the feeling the feeling of that of the light so i'm not so interested in the image which is certainly more of a focus of decorative glasswork i'm much more interested in the color and the shift in light and that's something that I think is, I think, conceptually really interesting and also on a very visceral level, very, very powerful because you're changing, you're changing the sort of physical environment through, through shifting light. But the decorative arts in glass, I find really interesting as a, you know, just as, as a, as a general viewer. It's, it's uh, something I find really beautiful and the, and the sort of craftsmanship of it's quite incredible. And also the material itself, the color itself is so wonderful. I mean, if you can compare the colors in stained glass to like the, the sort of colors of plexiglass, it's like it's such a, a, you know, a sort of color of a different order. I mean, you get a sense of it being pigment and these oxides and so forth. That's a sort of richness and beauty that is, uh, is very pure. And I guess when you pick a medium that has a foot in two camps, you get to play with the histories or engage the histories of, of two different things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's something that's, that, you know, it allows for these these references to to come up and I think, in, you know, hopefully enrich the experience. Speaking of references, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you pick subjects or places that interest you. So I understand that when the Seattle Art Museum calls you and wants you to do something for Olympic Sculpture Park, that there's a certain logic in picking, say, a sunset from Olympic Sculpture Park. But more broadly, how do you determine what is interesting enough to make the subject of one piece of work or six pieces of work, and then maybe to make it in, maybe to provide a little grounding for that question? So, for example, you went to Walden Pond and made watercolors or, or uh, matched the the light, the color of the pond to uh, a book of watercolor swatches, essentially, that you had. Why Walden Pond and not the woods outside, say, Emerson's house? My interest in Walden Pond came from this idea of Thoreau 
you know, who stayed there for two years, two months, and two days, understanding something completely. And like after his time there, he really, really understood the pond. And I think it's something that in our modern lives, we really, you know, don't do because we don't spend that kind of time looking at a single object or a single environment. And that, I I found that really inspiring, his sort of awareness of that natural environment. And so what I really wanted to do was in a much shorter period of time, try to understand Walden Pond. And that's why I did all of these soundings of the the depth and sort of understanding the part of the pond that's invisible, uh, you know, the the floor of the pond and, and the part that's visible, the surface, which is always, which is always changing. And of course, the water itself is, is clear or slightly green, but it's always looking to be different colors, appears to be different colors. And another place I've returned to a lot is Emily Dickinson's house. And that is, that's, that's more of a kind of group, groupy relationship I have. I mean, I'm much more, I'm much more obsessed as a fan with Emily Dickinson than I am with Thoreau. I mean, Thoreau, I'm interested, I guess, on an intellectual level, but I don't, you know, it's not the kind of artist I would want to be, whereas Emily Dickinson is this sort of real, absolute, miracle, creative genius. So for me, Dickinson is basically the model of artistic creativity. And so when I'm interested in doing something about creativity, that she or her environment, because it was so circumscribed, becomes material for me. With the Emily Dickinson work, is there a sense of wanting to know a place thoroughly in the same sense there is with the Walden Pond work or, as I sense, the Giverny work? It's it's more a sense, I think, of wanting to see what she saw and wishing that I could see it with this kind of complexity and the, the, the sort of depth and uh, richness in which she saw. And, and, and this idea of, you know, for her, it's kind of like all the world in a blade of grass, you know. She, she didn't travel everywhere, but her sort of experience in the world is so much, just from observing the world in her backyard in Amherst, is so much greater than most of us who can travel the whole world and not really see, see deeply or or understand the the sort of intrinsic sort of beauty and complexity in 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 that environment that then of course can take you out and become some somehow universal. No, you you are especially anyone who has read Ralph Waldo Emerson's 1836 Nature will will kind of recognize a certain commonality in the last couple of things we've discussed, which it perhaps inevitably leads me to my next question, which is about a work you made in 2007 titled The Most Beautiful Blue, Goethe's Theory, which features a, a candle, a pencil, a white piece of paper, and, and daylight, and... A window at dusk. <laughs> That's what you need also. <laughs> right. And, and so was your interest in Goethe, who is the probably probably the German most important to the American transcendentals, related to to Dickinson and Thoreau, or did you get there for other reasons completely? I, th- I think I arrived at reading Goethe out of, out of Wittgenstein's remarks on color. So, you know, the, you know, the big 
German slash Austrian color theorists who were in their way all kind of anti-Newtonian. I mean, Goethe was, you know, very strongly, he was wrong, I mean, in, in terms of his color theory, and he was, he, but he was anti, anti-Newton, and Runge and Wittgenstein also were, you know, created these sort of, I mean, not even theories of color, you know, it wasn't like there could be a, an experimentum crucis like Newton had to sort of prove that that white light is, is made up of uh, different wavelengths of different colors. I mean, it was more more of a sort of real poetic idea about color and even an ethic of color and a philosophy of color, which for me is, is really interesting. And for Wittgenstein, of course, the relationship between language and, and color, which is slippery and, and fascinating. And I guess the, the connection to the transcendentalist is, I guess, a certain romantic outlook. I mean, it's funny because you see you see a science in in all of them in in a way, and a sort of scientific method certainly at play in, in Goethe. And then you know his sort of romantic tendencies get the better of him, and he just sort of you know goes sort of off <laughs> off off the record, off the straight and narrow. You know Thoreau also. I mean, if he was he did the original soundings of of Walden Pond in a very sort of technical analysis of 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 the pond. A very Humboldtian but, way, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good, that's a good comparison. And of course, Emerson. Once Emerson left the church, he was freer to embrace science, which he which which he did to an extent. I mean, Unitarians in general did, but Emerson too embraced science in a way that American religion. I guess is still uh, only creeping toward. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and very and very skeptical of. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also skeptical of art, you might add, on, on the other pole. Yeah. American religion in Emerson's time was, and, and Thoreau's time, and Dickinson's time was skeptical of art. Well, speaking of, of of color theory, as 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 you brought it up, one color grouping you've never addressed in your work, at least that I can think of, and and do correct me if I'm wrong, because you've had a 20 year career and who can remember everything, is the primaries, red, yellow, and blue. And the primaries come out of early 18th century color theory and its intersection with Italian science, specifically chemistry, rather than directly out of the world. So maybe that's why the primaries haven't interested you. Have you consciously avoided doing the primaries, so to speak? <laughs> no. No, I mean, I have, you know, I mean, Goethe talks about the primaries to a certain degree. Wittgenstein certainly does as well. And I actually just did a strange color piece at a show that's up in Berlin now that is a sort of exploration of certain remarks on color by Wittgenstein using plants, flowered plants. So there's arrangement of plants, each arrangement of plants is based on a different a, a different remark on color, and one of the, one of his remarks is where he says yellow we can say is definitely lighter than you know he's very interested in lightness and darkness, which also goes back to to, to Goethe, of course, who really sees it as a range of as color as a range of light to dark. But he says we can see we can see yellow is lighter than blue, but is Red, or I think he says is yellow is lighter than red, but can we see, uh, but is red lighter than blue? And just, I really asked it as a question, which is also something I really like. I mean, it's much more interesting to, I mean, or I guess much more useful to make art out of color theory that's a question than 
about color theory, that's a, you know, a statement. But in terms of the primaries, yeah, they're also not as fun to look at. I don't know. I, I find them pretty entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I have, you know, I've done, I've done some work that was sort of based on, on Mondrian, you know, so that I use yellow, true. yellow, uh, yellow, red, and blue. So I, I have, I have done some, some work kind of based on Times Square, the color of light in Times Square that was Mondrian based. My guest is Spencer Finch. We'll be right back after a break. Member previews begin tomorrow at the Museum of Modern Art for Frank Lloyd Wright at 150, Unpacking the Archive. Celebrating the 150th anniversary of the renowned architect's birth, this unique exhibition includes everything from architectural drawings and models to building fragments and films, many on view for the very first time. Frank Lloyd Wright at 150, Unpacking the Archive, opens on Monday the 12th, but you can see it first as a MoMA member. Get more info and join at MoMA.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Blue Black, opening June 9th, curated by influential American artist Glenn Ligon. Inspired by his experience of the Pulitzer's monumental Ellsworth Kelly wall sculpture, also titled Blue Black, Ligon enlists the colors blue and black to pose timely and nuanced questions, touching upon notions of language, identity, and perception. The exhibition brings together a diverse selection of more than 50 works, ranging from abstraction to portraiture, from Norman Lewis to Andy Warhol, and including well-known works by Ligon. Join the Pulitzer for the opening reception for Blue Black on Friday, June 9th, and a public conversation with Glenn Ligon and Thelma Golden on Saturday, June 10th. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Spencer Finch. One of the things I wanted to do was to take a natural phenomenon that exists and kind of talk about how you've addressed it over time in your work. And I thought the one good place to do that would be uh, fog. In 2009, and you may have addressed fog before this, but in 2009, you made a piece called Thank You, Fog, a series of 60 inkjet prints, all of the same size, four and seven eighths inches square. And you've made works about fog since. Do you remember why in 2009-ish fog caught your attention? I actually did a really early piece on fog in like 93, I think, when I was first in New York, that was fog from the Empire State Building. So I would go up, I, mean, I went up to the top of the Empire State Building, went was fogged in, and I did these drawings of what I saw. And it was always nice because it was never crowded up there. And back then you would get like an actual ticket, you know, like a ticket you get at a carnival, one of those little or like an old movie ticket, and they would stamp it that would say, you know, no refund, because they had to tell you, you know, it's foggy, you're not going to see anything up there. And what I really wanted to do was see the fog. And what I was interested there particularly is, is, is a sort of obvious paradox, this idea of going to the Empire State Building to, to see this panorama of the city, and then all you see is fog. And, to, and that I mean, it's kind of silly. I, I ended up making the their paintings kind of on 
on kind of nylon that was stretched onto painting stretchers, and then I, I painted with acrylic, I think, onto that silk screen to get this, a sort of deep, deep fog image. I mean, they they never really worked out right, but that was the initial interest. And then with the Thank You Fog Works, I was really interested in, and that title comes from the title of Auden's last collection of poems. I, I always loved the title, though I don't know exactly what he meant. For for me, it was looking at this forest in Northern California where the fog was moving in and out of the redwoods and revealing and concealing. And this idea of allowing me to see more deeply what was going on in that forest. And so the idea of fog as something that sort of hides or erases or conceals is really not totally accurate because it 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 reveals what is behind it but it also reveals itself because it's something and it's you know it has its own nature that's so that's so rich and interesting and it's just and it's just gray enough to change the color of whatever is around it completely <laughs> Yeah, and it also has color. I mean, depending on, on what's happening with the daylight and, and the weather, it, it's it's not it's, it's not just like light black gray. It's, it's you know it's, it actually has a lot of, of color in it. So I've really I mean there are people who travel the world looking at fog. Someone told me that the most beautiful fog is actually somewhere in Vietnam. So there there are sort of fog, not surprisingly really, fog aficionados who travel to to experience fog in, in different places, and I can certainly understand the appeal. But I think it is, I mean, as a subject matter, as a landscape subject matter, it is certainly a romantic one. And also it is something that I think in its very nature questions the idea of seeing clearly, which is a, a notion that I really like because I'm, I'm skeptical of, of representation in general and truth in representation. And so if the actual subject matter of that representation is something as changing and obfuscating as fog, I think that then the subject matter can in fact call into question the whole notion of, of, of representation and, and sort of so that the work contains seeds of its own doubt in a way. In addition to the 2009 photographic work, you've more recently made at least one pastel on paper of fog, this time at a lake. Do you think about or look at fog differently when you're addressing it in media as different as a photograph and and something on paper? Yes, I mean when I do the drawings, uh, the, the pastel, I'm really thinking of the you know I look at the color so carefully because then so I you know because there really is color in that, and those actually came out of the the drawings came from. Uh, an obsession with Whistler lithographs of fog, which I was looking at a lot and, and really coveted. And when it became clear it's not something I would ever be able to own, I figured, oh, I can just make my own. And so that was <laughs> that was a, a sort of different kind of impulse for that. It was a sort of copying Whistler and trying to get something that I could have that was sort of similar. And then I kind of got in the groove and found it really interesting interesting to do. So they actually have a, they have a weird format where the image is, is, has a big border of paper around it that is uh, reminiscent of, of, uh, of a lithograph, you know, with that big, the big, the big border. So that's, that's where that came from. It was my uh, uh, Whistler uh, obsession. But, but of course, you know, that, 
kind of 19th century landscape painting is something that I find really beautiful and, and, and interesting. And also the sort of serial quality of a lot of that painting. You know, we started out by talking about the conceptual underpinnings of, of what you do, and now we're talking about something that's very perceptual. In fact, I'm not sure there's too much in the natural world that's more perceptual than 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 fog. Does your interest in the conceptual and the perceptual ever come into conflict? Because they don't really seem like things that should exist well together. Yeah, I mean, it's not... I think my work used to be more consistent, and it's, you know, it's, it is a bit less consistent some, somehow. I mean, I, I, I still think it's, you know, pretty idea-driven, but, but I, I, you know, sometimes there, there is a sort of perceptual experience that I find, you know, so, so compelling that, you know, maybe it's, uh, it doesn't have as, as much sort of conceptual underpinning as it, as it might have before. As your friend Emerson said, consistency is the hobgoblin of small mind. <laughs> well, it got me thinking about, you know, that kind of divergent polarity. I guess all polarity is divergent. But anyway, got me thinking about how you have talked about finding Bruce Nauman's practice and, and, and kind of day-to-day -day method valuable, especially early Nauman. And we've talked about the Giverny work and, and Monet and and you know Nauman and Monet are, are are kind of about as different as two artists could possibly be, especially two white male artists. So I get those are that those are two artists important to you. Are there artists in between them who kind of bridge that gap for you, or is the gap the important thing? <laughs> yeah, I think there are. I mean, who would be in between them? Maybe someone like Reinhardt would be in between them. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think artists inevitably find other artists to admire for for different reasons, and they influence them in different parts of how they work. You know, I think I, I think with with Nauman, it's really kind of an, an almost an ethical influence in a way, and a question of what's worthy of making art about. With with Monet, of course, it's much more of a kind of ret, retinal thing and a practice thing you know this idea of of plein air and and a relationship to, a relationship to nature and i think part of it also comes from you know not being able to i mean i can't be a mini bruce nauman it would be pathetic <laughs> <laughs> so i copy so i copy him just kind of as much as i can and then you know i i can copy monet you know and that throws people off the trail Moving away from kind of these atmospherics for a moment, I wanted to ask you about forms, I'm not sure if that's the right word, that frequently recur in, in your work. The first one is the starburst, or starburst-ish form, which is in, for example, Evening Star from 2011 or Shield of Achilles in 2013. What about that starbursty thing uh, is interesting <laughs> or works? Starburst form is something that I guess is kind of graphic and allows for a form to transmit ideas that are not pictorial. So, for example, the shield of Achilles, this shape, which is so it's a starburst kind of in the shape of a, of a circle referencing this circular shape of the shield of Achilles. 
that Hephaestus made for for Achilles. It is, you know, and that that shield, of course, is this sort of gesamtkunstwerk in which everything in the world is kind of in the in the painting. It's sort of a beautiful notion when it's when Homer describes it in the Iliad. But what my shield did is it I measured the color of the light at dawn in Troy, and so this shield, this form, reveals the the color of the light. It emits the color of the light of dawn in Troy. So it is this sort of moment when everything kind of happens there, and so it is this connection to this this ancient place and this ancient story and this ancient person and and and, and a myth. And the starburst sculpture of, of a star, for example, is really something that is about the wavelength of the the light of the of the star and how and the sort of specificity of the star. So I guess the form itself goes back to the form of the sun, and so I think that's really what it goes what it goes to. And certain compulsion with trying to make a picture of the sun, which is impossible to do because it's just you know it's just too bright. And that I guess comes from Turner. Uh, you know, who was obsessed with that same thing and probably, and said, uh, you know, it was probably apocryphal, but said on his deathbed, his last words were supposedly, the son is God. The other kind of recurring thing, and I could have picked lots, but, you know, in, in the interests of time and all, that I picked is your use of, of light fixtures. In 2006, uh, you made a piece called Cloud H2O. It's in the Hirshhorn's collection. I think it was commissioned by the Hirshhorn, too that is made up of uh, lights hanging by a wire or cord or thread of some sort from above. Uh, your new work at Mass Mocha, Cosmic Latte, on view now, also lights hanging from thread and a ceiling. The The conceptual idea behind each piece is about as different as could be. For the Hirshhorn piece, the uh, origin story goes back to Los Alamos and and the dawn of the atomic age. The piece at Mass Mocha has to do with what scientists are learning about the color of of the universe, if you will. But for both pieces, uh, you embraced this this kind of bulb and fixture thing form. What about that form do you do you like, and what about it makes it flexible enough to absorb? pretty different ideas. Yeah, well, I mean, both of those pieces are, I mean, all of these sort of light bulb pieces are based on molecular structures. So it it's really about seeing something differently than how we normally perceive it on a sort of physical level. So this idea of looking at something on an atomic level and trying to understand how that relates to its existence on a physical level is really interesting to me, and that sort of shift of scale. So, for example, the piece Cosmic Latte is based on what scientists determine to be the average color of the universe. If you average the color of all the stars in the universe, you get this kind of beige color, which is which has been coined Cosmic Latte. And so what I did is I mixed pigments to match the color of, of that cosmic latte. And it was almost all titanium white with a little cadmium yellow, a little Turner yellow, and a little cadmium red. Maybe it was Naples yellow. And so then the, the, art, the final artwork is, the, is a combination of all these different molecules. You know, they're like high school chemistry molecules made with light bulbs. So for example, in titanium dioxide, titanium is a heavier atom than 
oxygen, so the titanium bulb is bigger than the than the oxygen bulb. And because color, especially, is really, you know, on an atomic level, you don't see color. It's only on a physical level you see it. I thought, oh, it should just really be energy. And so, so the idea of using the, these actual fixtures is really to use something that's just sort of matter of fact. And that's a sort of basic functional fixture that doesn't have any sort of real decorative qualities. And it is really about, I mean, if it's the aesthetic of anything, I guess it's the aesthetic of a scientific model, which is, you know, pretty much no frill. We've been talking, uh, logically enough, about sites and things you have chosen to make art about. You, you are not an old man. Presumably there are other places in the world that interest you or, 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 or geographies or geographical histories you want to address. So what are some of them? Well, I actually just returned from Japan, and and so I was looking at things there, gardens and temples and so forth, and 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 landscapes, and that I found incredibly compelling. And so Ryoanji, for example, is something I've been interested in for a long time, and I spent a lot of time there on this trip, and I think that that's that something's going to come out of that. And both, I mean, it's a it's a very sort of rich. That, for example, is a very rich site. Both because of its sort of Zen meditation meaning and also this idea of it being a model of a landscape and a landscape that you move around. And it's just, you know, there's just there's just so much there. It's also generally an aesthetic that I find really compelling. It's something that I've, you know, pilfered from before. And so I'm, I'm really excited about the sort of material I gathered while I was over there. You know, all of these sites we've talked about, whether it's sunsets or or water or whatever, color is important not only to those physical places. You can't have sunset on a Puget Sound type place without having both color and big contrasts of color, the color of the sunset against the color of the water against the color of the forest, but also places where color is important to our cultural or historical memory of, of the place. Are you interested in or do you think about places that live in our imagination, both art historically, but also just kind of more broadly culturally in black and white? Um, one such place would be Yosemite, I think. No, I, I mean, I guess... I, I guess I just don't I just don't think in black and white that much. So I, I I mean, if I if I were to, I mean of course, you know, for a long time a lot of places were just represented in in black and white. And I did I did do a series of works based on Ache photographs. And so I went to different sites in Paris where he photographed and measured the light there, and then and then recreated that light using uh, flore- filtered fluorescent lamps with uh, a Newtonian breakdown of color. So it was, in that case, I was kind of taking these black and white images, erasing the images, and transforming it to the light of, of the, the subject of the image, if that makes sense. So I guess there, that, that is a case where I was taking the black and white getting rid of the image because I mean black and white you also think of as as providing an image you know the sort of indexical image that comes from the camera which I'm 
always trying to, if not avoid, at least complicate. And so, so I'm kind of fighting against it in some way. It's a question that came to mind because a lot of the American landscapes you have found ways to make work about, whether it's Tombstone or the Monument Valley or or Emily Dickinson's house, are from a black and white era of image making, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're also, you know, sort of from history, though. So I, I think it's, I mean, I, maybe it has to do with it being from a time, you know, when in the early days of photography, when there, you know, they, they are, these are sites that have a, a sort of place in our collective consciousness because of the photographs that we all know. You know, I think Yosemite, you know, probably we all have these Ansel Adams photographs in our in our heads. I mean, I think probably the first piece I did was, well, one of the first pieces I did was at Civil War battle sites. I did a project with Paul Ramirez Jonas back in like 1990 when we were both in New York and we went did sort of photographic and drawing studies of these places that exist in, you know, in, the, in certainly in black and white photographs is how we understand them and certainly how we understand the locations of, of what happened. Also, Winslow Homer in uh, graphic illustrations, which were in black and white or experienced in black and white in the 19th century. We now know them often as colored prints and later as Homer's paintings, but, but that's how they first trafficked in black and white. Spencer Finch, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Tyler. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Ronnie Horn on view through August 20th. See Horn's large-scale cylindrical glass sculptures that are infused with light, weight, and presence. The exhibition, the first U.S. Museum presentation of her work since 2010 and her first to focus specifically on cast glass sculpture, highlights the artist's inspiration from nature and language, as well as the reflective and translucent qualities of glass. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Andrea Chung, You Broke the Ocean in Half to Be Here, at its downtown location from May 19th through August 20th. For her first solo museum exhibition, artist Andrea Chung presents a new immersive installation together with selected prints and collages that explore legacies of colonialism and migration in the Caribbean. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Frederick Ilchman, the MFA Boston's curator of paintings. He has organized the MFA's showing of Botticelli and the Search for the Divine, the largest exhibition of Botticelli paintings ever shown in the United States. It's on view through July 9th. The show includes 15 works by the 15th century Florentine master, as well as works by his master and his peers. The show is co-organized by the MFA Boston and the Muscarel Museum of Art at the College of William and Mary. Frederick Ilchman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello, happy to be here. I thought we might start with a particular painting, and that's Madonna of the Book, uh, a Botticelli from Milan, just an extraordinary painting. And I thought we might start there because it's a pretty early painting, and it also points to some of Botticelli's biography that might that might be relevant. Well, maybe maybe I should let you um, inter- introduce the painting and, and maybe give us a quick description of it. So Madonna the Book, and as far as we can tell, this seems to be a new iconographical idea. That is the Madonna and the Christ Child reading a book together. 
the book's not just there for decoration or part of the setting, but actually it's something, it's a shared experience. And they have, each has a hand on the book. The Virgin Mary's hand is on the book, and then his little hand, echoing the pose, has his hand on her hand. But he looks up to her. It's a very complicated pose that he is in, with beautiful effects of light and shade, really kind of porcelain skin of both the Christ child and the Virgin Mary. But he looks up her as for affirmation or presumably to understand what is going to happen to him. What is the fate that he will have to endure and be sacrificed? And there's a real expression of concern, even sadness on her face. The picture is wonderfully balanced. The left side, particularly the lower left, is very busy. You've got a wooden table or as your piece of furniture with a cushion on top of that and then a sheet on top of that and then the book itself beautifully illuminated it's a gorgeous hand-produced book with lots of red letters and big illuminations for the beginnings of sentences and holy words and then contrasting with all this motion and the twisting body of the christ child upper right almost empty it's a big empty window and uh, this is such a beautiful balance and indeed the strong rectangle of the window in the upper right seems to lock the whole twisting composition into a kind of place gives it a grounding and you have uh, madonna wearing um, blue and red and the christ child wearing a light blue and then outside in the window you have both blue but also green so you have the three contemporary then primary colors if you will kind of kind of holding it all together the reason I wanted to bring this one up first that in, in, in a way that might kind of bind some biography together is 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 Botticelli's use of gold here. What, what's the relationship between Botticelli's father and brother and even Botticelli's own experience with gold? Well, like many, many artists, uh, he is trained partially as a goldsmith, and that was the, it was a standard practice in Florence, and lots of people did this because it was not only a relatively profitable career potentially, but also it provided good training. So many of the major artists in 15th and 16th century Florence started off as, as goldsmiths. And there's something about the precision in that work, which you can see in this. I mean, he's very refined and there's just delicacy everywhere. And people think of Botticelli, I think, as being strong contours and, and paintings like his Venuses, which have these lovely curvy bodies. But in fact, the, it, he's all about texture too. He really understands how to render something very minutely and precisely. So I think that's key. And there's a lot of gold in this. I mean, gold backgrounds had dropped out of Florentine painting by the sort of middle of the 1400s, but he's got gold in the halos and the edges of the various fabrics and on the cushion. And then the amazing thing, a little heavy handed perhaps, but there is a gold crown of thorns around the Christ child's wrist, and he's holding in his little hand three little nails, which are both foreshadowing his being mocked and then uh, put on the cross. I think it's easy for visitors who are used to seeing Renaissance paintings in art museums with their kind of uniform washes of, of light from ceilings to forget or maybe not even realize how light would have hit that gold natural light would have hit that gold once upon a time. So we, I, I, I gather that this gold, these gold features would have just bounced off the canvas. I'm sorry, off the panel. Yes, exactly, off the panel. I think that an important thing to remember is that much of the time you'd be looking at this kind of painting, it'd be a single viewer, right? The, the owner of this painting, although it's religious, it was not for a church, it was for a private home. And imagine a candle in front of this and then the light from the candle playing over the surface and then catching as the light moved, the gleam of the gold it would have been very beautiful. And also, of course, gold and blue uh, complement each other so well. It really makes the gold 
the gold makes the blue uh, really pop out, and there's a, a conspicuous amount of very expensive lapis lazuli blue in this. Anyone seeing this painting in 1480 would say first, wow, that's a lot of expensive blue. And then the second thing he would say is, well, of course it's appropriate because the Virgin Mary deserves as the queen of heaven and queen of the sea to, uh, to be clothed in the most expensive material. So having introduced this this terrific painting, let's try and put Botticelli in context a bit. He's in Florence. We, we have him dabbling in, in, in goldsmithing, but eventually he ends up working in the studio of a painting master. Who, who was that painter and what impact does that painter have on Botticelli? And, and also, how do we see that in this show, for that matter? So Botticelli's teacher is, is also a well-known painter named Fra Filippo Lippi, Fra as in brother, because he was a Carmelite friar. He's born around 1406, so about 39 years before Botticelli. He is both a friar and, and a painter, and he's in that first generation of showing substantial human bodies, right? None of this gothic surface decoration. No, what he wants to do is show people that look like they're ancient Roman statues, and he's picking up on Masaccio in this. Masaccio, by the way, of course, paints in that's the church that's attached to this to his convent, the Santa Maria del Carmine, does the famous frescoes in the Brancacci Chapel, where these figures really wear big, substantial drapery around their bodies, and they look stern and rather pensive, uh, like ancient Roman statues. And Lippi takes this up beautifully, but he adds a real tenderness, and this is an important ingredient. Masaccio's figures do not have the sort of sweetness between the mother and child, or the sense of adoring that you see in the angels who are clustered throughout Lippi's paintings. And Lippi gets a start before Botticelli is even born, and in the exhibition we have a couple examples of that. But he does teach his pupil, Botticelli, principles of strong contours, uh, the evident tenderness between the mother and son, an attentiveness to surfaces, particularly marbles, just beautiful faux marbles in his pictures. And there's a, there's a sense of quiet dignity. Botticelli goes beyond this, though, and by the later 1460s, he leaves Lippi shop has a goes on to a solo solo career uh, sets up a shop in in Florence and uh, his things now uh, have a sort of greater elegance they're a little more elongated than anything his teacher would do uh, but he keeps up the tenderness between the mother and son and beautiful surfaces really gorgeous complexions you see like the Madonna the book one of the things that Lippi does and perhaps does first. I mean, it's hard to pin down first, but is is adorations. Why, given the style Lippi was developing, would adorations have maybe been a natural thing for him to, not maybe not natural, but, but something that, that his stylistic interests might have led him to? And then how does Botticelli pick up on that? Well, the adoration of the Christ child is a very common topic for smaller format pictures. We're talking about an audience of one. This is a private devotional painting. You'd you can get them in all sorts of levels of, of quality. You could buy them already made, kind of on spec. Uh, they can be made with quite inexpensive materials out of stucco or paper mache. At the upper end, they'd be in marble or a painting by a major master, so a relief sculpture. And there's something about these, I think, is that these are, this subject is exemplary prayer. That is, within the picture you see sometimes an angel, sometimes a saint, but very much in Florence, starting with Lippi, you see the young St. John the Baptist. And he's such an important figure because, of course, he's a cousin of Christ. So he's, you see him praying or adoring, looking down with deep respect and reverence at his cousin, Jesus. And I think this is a thing that you'd, you'd have a picture like this in your own home, and you'd be this type of 
prayer, exemplary prayer, they would model this for you. You'd look at this and try to be as devoted as the as the infant St. John the Baptist was. So does Botticelli notice or benefit from or pick up on the way that Lippi takes emotional resonance between two figures, paints it naturally, and then kind of jumps off from that himself? Is that a fair read? I, I think that's a very fair read. I think he's there's sometimes a sense of distance in Botticelli's figures, particularly his mature works, because the people are so darn elegant and you know, live bodies kind of moving very gracefully through space. But but in paintings like the Madonna, the book, there is an amazing tenderness, a connection. And I think Lippi really would have encouraged him in that. And, and that's a sort of standard thing in Lippi. I mean, he's got these pudgy babies, whether they be the baby Jesus or little little cherubs and, and little angels. And I, Botticelli picks up on this, but then then really moves it forward. I think you know, it's amazing what artists can do with a relatively conservative subject matter, just the Madonna and child, or Madonna and child plus another saint. And But, you know, I mean, Mozart wrote dozens of quartets, and they're, they're not repetitive. He knew what he was doing, even playing within a formula. The Madonna of the Loggia, a painting from the Uffizi that is in Boston now, is, is, I guess, a good example. Or is that a good example of Botticelli beginning to synthesize that relationship between two people and paint? Yep. Agreed. The Madonna of the Loggia is a great example. It's just the beginning of his solo career. And we have here the faces of the Madonna and child overlap. He looks up to her for comfort. She looks, uh, covers his face partially. Uh, she looks a bit sad because she understands what will happen to him. There's a shininess to the skin, uh, which might come from Verrocchio or other painters and sculptors in the time. It's kind of beautiful the way that's rendered. This picture, its pose, is kind of a mirror image of another one in the exhibition, a big lippy painting that's from the Palazzo Medici in Florence. But what I wanted to get at here is what, something that doesn't come from Lippi is the really dynamic pose. When you look at the Madonna Loggia, you see that Christ Child's left foot is projecting forward and is pushing off of his right foot, which is extended behind him. And that's a bit like a stance of a, of a uh, let's say, a fencer. It's very athletic. And that isn't found in Lippi. Lippi's figures are not athletic like that. And instead, we're arguing the exhibition that this comes from another Florentine artist, Antonio del Poliolo who was a well-known sculptor, printmaker, and painter. And we've got a print and a big painting of St. Michael killing the dragon. And it's that kind of same stance. A very This, this figure, uh, St. Michael, and Poliolo's painting is very wiry and athletic. And he's got this strong stance leaving forward, leaning forward. And he looks like he came right off of a Greek vase painting. Uh, and Poliolo was one of the first artists to really take seriously ancient Greek vases and particularly sarcophagus figures from ancient Roman tombs. And, you know, they're always shown in profile, all these battle scenes. And he begins to adapt that for, for the art of that day, you know, for the art of the, you know, 1460s. And this is another big influence on Botticelli. So I think a lot of Lippi plus a little bit of Poliolo in terms of its dynamism, that's how you get the early years of Botticelli as an independent artist. We'll have images of all of these on manpodcast.com. And uh, once once your attention is called to the position of the legs and the hips and the stances in the Christ child in these various works, you, it's hard, hard, hard not to keep staring at it. You also in the show have a much later Botticelli from The Gardener. It's a nativity adoration mashup sort of. How has what Botticelli is doing changed by the time he get, we get in the 1480s. 
the really the big one of the, the sort of two big hinge dates for for Botticelli's career. The first one is 1481-82 when he's called by Pope Sixtus IV to come down and paint this new chapel in the Vatican, the Cappella Sistina, the Sistine Chapel, and he's one of a group of artists from Florence who are invited to paint the side walls. You know, this is the whole generation before Michelangelo is brought down to paint the ceiling. But in this Botticelli, the invitation confirms that Botticelli is really one of the top artists in, in not just in Florence, but all of Italy. And also it gives him the experience of being in Rome for about a year where he's seeing you know, ancient ruins and lots of new sculpture that's been unearthed uh, from ancient Rome. And so he's, it's, a, I think, a really formative experience for him. So that's one of the really big, big moment in his life. And it's not like he comes back from there and says, ah, I need to put the Colosseum in the background of all my paintings, but rather that he so absorbs ancient Roman culture that he's able to do these large format pictures like the beautiful Minerva in the Centaur, which is also in the exhibition, where it's like fully understand these figures and they sort of, it's like these ancient types have come to life and they're breathing right in our space. And so that's a key thing. And the, the painting from the Gardner Museum you mentioned a minute ago seems to be done right after your turns from Rome. And it, again, it shows a grandeur. These are now figures that, although not that big on the panel, have a real massiveness to them. If the figure of St. Joseph were to stand up, he'd, you know, he'd, he'd be enormous. But, but, but there's, a, there's a sense of, of gravity, maybe, uh, both in the sense of seriousness, but also in the sense of just sheer bulk that you see in his art of the 1480s. I mean, Botticelli in this period is going from strength to strength, and he is painting equally comfortably religious works of real devotion, and then works inspired by the classical pagan past, like the Minerva and the Centaur. He has no problem with the, the moving back and forth, and neither do his patrons. And all that changes in the early 1490s, when Lorenzo the Magnificent, the main patron and the guy running the government in Florence, suddenly dies, and Savonarola, the fiery Dominican preacher, fills the political vacuum. We will get to Savonarola in a few minutes, but while you mention Minerva and the Centaur, which is an amazing painting, why does Botticelli present Minerva in, in such an unusual manner without her usual attributes like a helmet or the shield with Medusa's head? And what should we take from that? Well, I should admit first that we've not been able to unpack exactly what this painting's about. There've been various arguments, but I fall into the camp thinking she's definitely Minerva, even though she doesn't have uh, a helmet. She's holding a pike and she does have a, so it's a massive uh, weapon right in her, in her left hand. It's about two feet taller than she is. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this is quite something. And then on her back, back of her costume, kind of hidden a bit by the curves of her flowing hair, is a, is a major shield. This is a big weapon. And so she's a combination of loveliness, and she is incredibly elegant with a long flowing hair and a kind of diaphanous nightgown that she's wearing that very much emphasizes her figure. There's a three-linked rings motif to see on that uh, as a kind of design that is embroidered on her dress, which is a Medici family motif. But she's not just beautiful, she's really tough. And with her right hand, she has the head of a centaur. She's grabbing the hair and totally dominating him. She's subdued him and he looks miserable. And this, this kind of large format painting, these are much larger than life-size figures, seems to be many layers at once. It's both evocation of an ideal beauty because she is gorgeous. It's not just that she's pretty, but she's very gracefulness, very graceful. Uh, you can see 
in her graceful move, in her graceful stance, her foot waits on her right leg and the left leg trails. And there's often a trailing leg that is not bearing much of the weight in Botticelli. So these people move like dancers. But also this has probably been rightly read as an allegory of the triumph of order over chaos. The point being that Minerva, the Roman goddess of wisdom, gives us humans a gift, the gift of reason that allows us to triumph over a chaotic world and submit it to order. Uh, we can rise above animal instincts, and this half-man, half-horse centaur is being totally controlled by the power of reason which, or wisdom which uh, Minerva grants us. So before we get to Savonarola I wanna, uh, and, and, and the great mystic crucifixion in the show, the great weird mystic crucifixion in the show, I, I want to hit two other things. I think that Botticelli's figures are so gripping that the landscapes in his paintings maybe are are less a focus, at least of American audiences. And your show includes a really great one, uh, the landscape in The Judgment of Paris. How does Botticelli use landscape here, and what is the story he's kind of telling with the landscape he's using? Yes, The Judgment of Paris, which is a picture that we believe was done by Botticelli, a supervising uh, an assistant in his workshop. It's got a wonderful landscape. In the foreground, you've got some wonderful animals, including uh, charming dogs and uh, kind of uh, goats with scratching their ears and such. And then you go further back, there's a big body of water and a meandering shoreline, and then what appears to be the city of Rome in the distance. And, you know, the story, of course, is this relates, this is a poor, uh, humble shepherd named Paris, whose job is to pick the most beautiful of three gods. He gives a special golden ball, which, in fact, in the, the painting in the exhibition says, to be given to the most beautiful, it's the prize. He gives it to Venus or Aphrodite, which, of course, really takes off the other two goddesses. And uh, this sets off a chain of events, uh, leading to Helen of Troy, her abduction, the Trojan War, the destruction of Troy, and then eventually uh, Aeneas, fleeing Troy, goes, travels all around the Mediterranean and founds, at the end, Rome. So there's a whole lot going on in this painting. got both extension of space, but also extension of time. Anyone seeing this picture and understanding the story would get that it's not just a beauty pageant for that brief minute, but rather something that sets into motion events that go on for decades. And that's a, that's a kind of fascinating idea that just like the viewer would enjoy seeing the various buildings and animals, but also would like, would enjoy pondering the various vicissitudes in the story. One of my favorite details on the left side, we couldn't figure out what that was for a bit. thought it was some sort of catapult. It looks like uh, something with wood under pressure uh, that might be firing a big boulder. But in fact, it seems to be the keel of a ship being constructed. And so we have a kind of ship's dock at the far left. And there are two different pieces where the wood of the keel is being bent into the round uh, shape of the hull. So we'll have an image of the painting on manpodcast.com and a detail. A little Earlier, you mentioned that Botticelli went to Rome to do some work for the Pope, and that uh, this was before Michelangelo gets there to do the Sistine ceiling. Uh, Michelangelo's teacher was an artist named Domenico, and he and Botticelli ended up in something of a competition, and you have Botticelli's half of the competition in, in your show. What was the competition, and what is the painting you have? Botticelli and Ghirlandaio, you know, both go to Rome. They're rough contemporaries. They are exemplars of, you know, cutting edge painting in the 
1470s, and they each do, around the same time, a fresco, that is a painting in fresh plaster, of a saint in his study. Ghirlandaio paints a St. Jerome in the church of San Salvatore in Ognisanti, that is all saints, and Botticelli does one of St. Augustine in his study. They're both showing a seated man in voluminous robes, lots of details of books around them, and there's a sort of a table they're shown in the act of writing. The Botticelli one, though, the figure is grander. He has a sort of more beautiful pose. He's kind of more handsome. It looks He's looking up as if for inspiration or to fathom what has just happened. You know, the story goes that midway, St. Augustine writing a letter to St. Jerome, he suddenly has a vision that Jerome, the intended recipient, has just died. And he sort of catches himself at this moment of, of sorrow. And he looks up and he stops writing, puts his pen in the little ink pot and touches his chest in a gesture of sort of being moved. And uh, ever since they were made, there was the sense that these two single saints in similar settings for the same church were something of a competition, and it's always been assumed that Botticelli won this. And within about 80 years, the paintings were moved within the church. This was part of a big redecoration campaign led by Vasari, the author of the famous biographies of artists. He was also a major architect. In updating the church a bit, these paintings of an older style were moved around different walls. And the painting of St. Augustine by by Botticelli is thus portable. It's no longer affixed to the wall and uh, it was able to come to America for the first time for this exhibition. So we mentioned, you mentioned Savonarola a little bit earlier. He kind of takes over Florence in all kinds of ways, including in burning things from previous regimes, including art. Botticelli makes a good career move and, and gets on Savonarola's good side. And among his paintings from this era is one in your show known as the Mystic Crucifixion. Maybe could you describe the painting and talk about how it reflects Savonarola's message and how you think it fits within Botticelli's oeuvre? So this picture is quite extraordinary. It's very, very damaged. When someone looks at it for the first time, they assume they're seeing a network of paths in the landscape, you know, brown paths. But actually, no, this painting is so damaged. What looks like brown paths are, in fact, big areas of missing paint. This picture would have originally been done on a wooden panel, and then sometime, I'm guessing in the late 19th, early 20th century, in order to preserve the painting, the top layer, the sort of paint uh, layer was taken off and removed from the panel and put on a canvas support. Now this unfortunately almost totally destroyed the picture, so what we're looking at now is very much a wreck. But it is so fascinating and very much fits the mood of the last third of the exhibition where we see the results of this swift and terrible forces in at work in Botticelli's Florence. You know, earlier in the exhibition, he's really going from strength to strength, and he's pushing the envelope of creativity. He's one of the most innovative artists in in the world then. But uh, with this big change of political government, death of the of Lorenzo the Magnificent the, in 1492, the expulsion of the Medici family two years later, as the French army is invading Italy, and then the rise of Savonarola, you've got these big political and religious forces much larger than he. So in this painting, The Mystic Crucifixion, we have Christ on the cross looking down. That's rather, rather straightforward. But we're missing normally the figure of the Virgin Mary, who's normally on the left side of the painting. That is Christ's right side as he looks out. And then there's normally John the Evangelist on the right. Neither one is present here. Instead, we have 
Mary Magdalene, right, the reformed prostitute, very emotional figure. She's thrown herself on the ground and she's clutching desperately the base of the cross. There's a figure on the right of a tall avenging angel striding forward. And uh, this angel is, has a weapon in his right hand and the left hand is holding an animal, a big furry animal, which we think is a marzocco. That is the symbolic lion of Florence, punishing the city of Florence. In the upper right, coming down in front of this screen of black clouds, are burning torches. And then in the upper left, you see these little shields, which are being pushed by very faint angels. At one point, you could read the angels uh, more visibly, but these shields are pushing the dark clouds away. And then finally, in the upper left, you have God the Father sitting in the middle of the sun, and light is falling on the city of Florence, the presumably cleaned or cleansed city of Florence, purified down below. So it's an extraordinary painting. It's a bit apocalyptic or nightmarish. Uh, and we date this to around 1500 because there's only one painting in Botticelli's entire oeuvre that is dated, and that is one in the National Gallery in London. It's not in our exhibition, but we call that a, mus- a mystic nativity because it shows the nativity of Christ with all these angels around them who are embracing in a very strange way. And it seems to be the end of time or an apocalyptic prediction. You know, in the year 1000 or the year 2000, a lot of people thought the world was going to come to an end. And they did also in that other round number year of 1500. And that painting in London's dated 1500, and it's very much in the similar mood as this picture here. Uh, And so we can date this with a plausible argument to that this one is done around 1500. Finally, this is, as I said in the introduction, the biggest Botticelli show uh, the U.S. has ever seen. How did that happen? How did you get it? I mean, we have 15 paintings by Botticelli in this exhibition, which might not sound like a lot, but it's easily the biggest group ever assembled in an exhibition in North America for the artist. And we've supplemented that with works by other artists and some works on paper, that is some engravings, woodcuts, some rare books. And this uh, exhibition does seem a long time in coming and that there should have been one, you know, a generation or two ago, but there really hasn't been any Botticelli show of size or substance beyond what was locally available. And part of it, I think, is many of the works are in Italy and are highly prized, and many are large format and very fragile. Also, part of the point is that uh, no curator ever said, oh, you know, I want to put this Botticelli guy on the map. I'm going to give him his first ever show. I mean, he's been famous for, for you know, many generations, and so there didn't seem like any active discovery. But we were lucky that Museum of Fine Arts Boston and our partner in this, the Muscarella Art Museum at the College of William and Mary, because there was kind of a vacuum. And a lot of people said, well, gosh, there's not been a Botticelli exhibition. It's time to do one. And we'd like to make these works, because the cork does come all from Italy, to make uh, these works available for a new audience. You know, this, is the, this is the closest you can get to traveling to Florence right now, is to come to the MFA for Botticelli. And so the Muscarella Art Museum did about a year or two of sort of legwork on this, began all the negotiating, and then the MFA stepped in. There's a nice quirk in the calendar that in Virginia, they have at the beginning of February their charter day at William & Mary, and they want a big exhibition that makes a splash that will be on then. They have their trustees and their donors and such. And then a show that begins in late January, close in early April, which means it can open at the MFA in mid-April, which is now New England's high season, right? No one in New England wants to do something in January. You don't get a lot of attendance in February, but uh, it means the timing works great for us. And so we've done several other collaborations with them, but this is the biggest one by far. One other thing I should add for the Boston version of Botticelli. Frederick Ilchman, thanks so much. 
That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.